Hi there, and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 2022 Lives Conference in Paris. Mechanical ventilation is indeed a life-saving intervention. However, it is clear that positive pressure ventilation itself has the potential to cause harm. Novel approaches to ventilation aim at minimising this risk, and one such strategy is the incorporation of esophageal pressure monitoring. Ty Pham is a staff intensivist in Paris and an assistant professor at the Paris Saclay University. He completed a PhD in public health where he focused on respiratory physiology and mechanical ventilation and is a member of the executive committees for the Lung Safe and Wean Safe Studies. And he joins me on the podcast today. Ty, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Todd, for your invitation. I'm delighted to be there with you. So well, let's start with what information uh, you can get from an esophageal manometry device. What, what does it tell you? Sure. So it, it was demonstrated on uh, some um, healthy, not patients, but subjects, that it's a good surrogate of a pleural pressure. So if you have a good surrogate of pleural pressure, you have an idea of what is the pressure applied to the chest wall, and you can measure the transpulmonary pressure. So transpulmonary pressure is the actual pressure um, that is applied to the lung, to uh, the uh, alveoli. And so if you remove the pleural pressure from the total respiratory pressure, you get this transpulmonary pressure. So that's an important information for all our patients who have respiratory distress or who have uh, ARDS or intubated patients. So you can have a more personalized uh, ventilation. And the second thing that it can give you, it can provide an idea of patient's effort because when a patient is active, is breathing, he uh, has a negative uh, esophageal pressure that is uh, a surrogate of his respiratory methods. A lot of um, listeners will be familiar with the concept of esophageal manometry, but never actually done it or seen it done. Can you describe how it's done, how it's inserted, and what process you go through to to get those results? Sure, of course. So first of all, I have to say that you need to train a bit, but it's very easy to do it. I've spent a few years in Toronto, and there, after... uh, training, the uh, respiratory therapists are doing like the esophageal catheter insertion by themselves without any uh, supervision. And they are quite familiar with it. And it's uh, done on a daily basis. So you, of course, you need to see and train a bit, but then it's uh, quite straightforward. So the easiest way to insert it is just like a uh, gastric uh, feeding tube you have to insert it when the patient is in semi-recumbent position if the patient is awake which is most of the case not uh, in intubated patients but uh, more mainly for uh, healthy subjects or patients with non-invasive ventilation but if the patient is awake you have uh, to use anesthesia for the uh, nose and the uh, oropharynx then you insert the catheter through the nostril and when you insert it, of course, the balloon is empty and you advance it to the stomach. Once you are in the stomach, you can inflate the balloon and the volume of inflation depends on the type of catheter, but all the catheter have like a typical volume uh, written on their uh, instruction or directly in the uh, package. Then you, so you, you have this uh, balloon inflated in the stomach. 
when the balloon is inflated, we'll have a like a direct uh, measurement of the pressure. And you will uh, use this inflated balloon to, and, and uh, sorry, you, you will withdraw centimeter by centimeter uh, until you get uh, some uh, deflection. If the patient is awake, of course, you will have negative deflection when he's breathing. And you try to have the balloon inserted in the lower third of the esophagus. To be sure that you're at the right spot, first of all, I forgot to say it <laughs> at the beginning, but you can measure the distance between the nostril, uh, the um, jaw, and the um, uh, sternum to have an idea of how deep is uh, you have to insert it and to restrain it. And you have, in most of the cases, like uh, the number of centimeters from the tip to the uh, the uh, insertion location. So when you withdraw uh, the uh, inflated balloon, you will see first uh, cardiac oscillation. And when you have this cardiac oscillation, it's kind of artifacts and you have to withdraw a little bit more up to the uh, place where the cardiac oscillations uh, disappear. And when you think you're at the right spot, you have two ways of um, making sure that it's actually the, the good location. If the patient is awake, you will use what is called the Bader maneuver. So you, uh, if you, the patient is uh, with mechanical ventilation, uh, you will measure at the same moment uh, the uh, deflection of the uh, esophageal pressure and the deflection of the airway pressure when you perform uh, a pause. If you have a pause, there is no gas entering or uh, getting out of the patient. So all the pressures should be uh, the same. The variations of the pressure should be the same. So then you calculate the delta between during the inspiration. And if the negative swing is similar in the esophageal pressure and in the airway pressure, it means that you're at the right spot because you have a good transmission of the pressure. Typically, we me measure this delta and the ratio between the esophageal pressure and the airway pressure, and it has to be between 0 0.8 and 1.2 to be, so around one is good. If the patient is passive, so sedated, or uh, paralyzed, you have the same information when you perform a pause and you do um, uh, a pressure on the uh, thorax. So you do a, a, negative, a positive pressure on the thorax that will be transduced both to the airway pressure and to the esophageal pressure. And again, uh, this delta uh, of, during the uh, pressure should be uh, similar. So the ratio will be with between 0 0.8 and 1.2. If it's not the case, it's usually it usually means that the balloon is still too deep and you have to withdraw it a little bit more and to uh, do the maneuver again. So chest compression or active measurement if the patient is active. How long does it take you to gain the skills to be able to insert them reliably? Uh, I would say that if you are supervised for three or four balloons, then you're 
almost uh, like independent. Uh, for instance, I, I had uh, two master students last year who worked on this, and uh, we inserted uh, three balloons together. And then for the 20 uh, next patients, they did it on their own, and they usually had uh, like uh, good signals. Once you're getting reliable data from it, I, how do you fold the results into your management of the mechanical ventilator? There are different ways of using uh, this piece of information. So uh, personally, I use it more at the acute phase uh, when the patient is severe, hypoxemic, and mainly in RDS patients or in patients uh, for whom I suspect that there is a high chest wall pressure. Uh, likely due to extrapulmonary issues such as pancreatitis or uh, surgery. Um, the way to do it when the patient is passive uh, is either to use a direct measurement when you do the airway pressure minus the esophageal pressure, and so you have the transpulmonary pressure. Uh, the second way to do it is based on the uh, elastance-derived measurement, which is the elastance of the lungs over the elastance of the respiratory system. And the hypothesis is that this ratio is constant. So to do so, you measure the compliance of the respiratory system, which is the driving pressure that you measure with the uh, with an inspiratory pose and an expiratory pose, and the tidal volume, you get the same information uh, for the lung when you uh, do the uh, airway pressure minus the esophageal pressure, and you can measure the driving pressure of the lung. And based on this, you also can measure the uh, compliance of the lung and doing the opposite, you have the ratio. So when you know this uh, elastance ratio, you you can um, uh, use the, um, sorry, you can measure the um, uh, transpulmonary pressure using the airway pressure multiplied by the elastance uh, ratio. So this is, the second way to measure the uh, transpulmonary pressure. And direct measurements and elastance-derived uh, measurements have different uses. And uh, there is a very nice paper from Takeshi Yoshida uh, on the Blue Journal in 2017, where he used direct measurements of uh, the uh, pleural pressure with sensors that were in the dependent and the non-dependent Part. And uh, he did the same in uh, cadavers that were prepared to have the same uh, uh, tissue uh, elastin than uh, patients. And based on this, he found that the um, catheter measurement uh, was accurate to measure what is around this balloon. And what is around this balloon during the expiration is the Dep dependent part of the lung and what is around this balloon during the inspiration is a non-dependent part. And based on that, the hypothesis is that direct measurement is good to limit collapse at the end of the expiration and that the elastance-derived measurement is best to limit plateau pressure and the uh, pressure applied to the non-dependent part of the lung and to limit ventilator-induced lung injury. 
I was going to ask you whether the measure was a global measure of lung function or whether there were different ways of using this technique to measure um, different effects in different parts of the lungs. And it sounds like you can. Yes, correct. So as I explained, maybe I was a little bit long, but the to summarize this, if you do the direct measurements, so airway pressure minus esophageal pressure, you can limit collapse at the end of the expiration. And your goal is to maintain a transpulmonary pressure around zero or plus two centimeters of water. This will limit the collapse because the airway pressure will always be sorry, the lung pressure will always be superior to the chest pressure, and so you will limit collapse. And for the elastance derived, because you're at the inspiration, you're mainly measuring what's happening in the non-dependent part of the lung, so the healthy parts. And these healthy parts, you really want to avoid over-distension. And over-distension will be detected by a too high transpulmonary pressure at the end of the inspiration. And using the elastance derived measurement, you can limit this plateau pressure, uh, or at least know how high it is and try to uh, optimize your ventilation to limit this uh, transpulmonary plateau pressure. So what are the limitations of this technique? Um, it's fair to say that it's not universally used in patients with um, with ARDS and being mechanically ventilated. Why do you think that is? And what are some of the limitations that have stopped being more widespread? Sure. So first of all, if we think of when we should not use uh, esophageal pressure, there are very few cases because it has the same contraindication as not inserting a gastric catheter. So if your patient has varices, esophageal varices, or have severe coagulopathy, then you will be afraid that you will create bleeding and so you should not use it. The uh, other uh, limitations are when your measurements are not totally reliable, and this can happen if you have leaks. If you have a pneumothorax or chest tubes, of course, you will not be able to have a stable uh, inspiratory or expiratory pose, and all your measurements will be uh, limited by this. The last limitation for the measurements is if uh, in some patients, you can see that there are some esophageal spasms and esophageal spasms will artificially increase the, uh, not artificially because it's actually increasing the pressure, but it's not a good surrogate of the chest wall because it's the esophageal that is exerting an, uh, a pressure on the uh, catheter. But this is temporary and usually you can see on your measurements when you have an esophageal pressure and when it stopped and you can manage to do all your measurements when there is no spasm. And I think one of the main limitation not to use it is because uh, people are not familiar with it. So uh, as I told you, if you are in a team who, are, who is very proactive in this and people are trained, it will be like part of the usual and daily care of the patient. You will insert the balloon, take the measurements several times a day and try to personalize ventilation based on these measurements. If you start from scratch, of course, it will take longer because you have to convince your team that this can uh, be helpful and then to train people. 
and uh, and the more you use it the more you want to use it and i uh, see in my team that uh, residents or researchers uh, once they get familiar to it they ask a lot of questions about how we can uh, use it more why should uh, why we did not insert a balloon in this patient and uh, so it's uh, it's getting easier and easier now the one thing that most clinicians will be very keen to hear is what the evidence base is for its efficacy um, what studies have been done uh, so far and what did the results show Sure. I think the excitement came mainly from the uh, EPVENT1 study. That was uh, a study where the team from uh, Boston uh, optimized or titrated PIP based on uh, the esophageal pressure. And even if it was not their uh, main uh, goal for the um, uh, study, they found that there was an increased survival in patients with a uh, PIP that was titrated based on the esophageal pressure as compared to uh, low PIP FiO2 tables from the ARDS network. So based on this, they built a second study, which was EPVENT2, um, whose first author is uh, Jeremy Beitler, and that was published a few years ago. And unfortunately, they could not find the same signal. There are many there are lots of difference between those two studies. And in a nutshell, to the patients were a bit different. If even one, they, you had more patients with extra pulmonary issues, so likely with chest wall issues and esophageal pressure might be more interesting in these patients. And also they compared uh, the uh, control group to uh, high PPFIO2 tables from the uh, S network in the EPVEN2. So you had less differences between the uh, PIP used in, in the two groups. So EPVEN2 found no difference, no difference, sorry, in the uh, global survival, but also no difference in the management of the patients. Uh, after EPVEN2 was uh, published, uh, someone in their team uh, reanalyzed this based on different subpopulation. So uh, Dr. Sarge did a very interesting uh, analysis of EPVEN2, and he found like two important uh, results. So on the same um, population, patients with the, who were the less severe with a lower Apache 2 score had a significant mortality improvement when they were managed with esophageal pressure as compared to the patients who were not managed with esophageal pressure. And it might be the opposite in the more severe patients, even if it did not reach a statistical uh, significance. One of the hypotheses is that uh, in the, uh, in the um, more severe patients, uh, you have extra pulmonary uh, severity, mainly hemodynamic instability. And when you use esophageal pressure and you increase uh, the uh, um, the PEEP and the transpulmonary pressure, you might worsen the uh, hemodynamic instability. But this is hypothesis that is not proved. So this is the first uh, result from the reanalysis. But the second part, which to me is also very interesting, is that 
if you separate the population between the patients who have uh, transpulmonary pressure maintained between plus or minus two centimeters of water as compared to the patients who have lower expiratory transpulmonary pressure or higher transpulmonary pressure, you have a better survival in the group of patients around uh, plus or minus two centimeters of water. And the interpretation of that is that this setting might live in, limit uh, both over distension and collapse. And this is quite interesting because we had a kind of similar results in uh, another uh, study that was published by the group of Toronto, so Luchen, um, and uh, it's an observational study, but they looked at all the RDS patients who had uh, esophageal pressure. And in these patients, they also uh, found that in obese patients with uh, expiratory transpulmonary pressure above zero, you had a better survival. So it might avoid collapse and maybe uh, lead to a uh, uh, better uh, outcome. Which patients, given all of that, which patients do you particularly believe will benefit the most from using this sort of uh, intervention? So I, I think the patients who might uh, benefit the more from transpulmonary uh, pressure are obese patients because they usually have a, a big uh, uh, pressure applied on the chest wall. And uh, so it's not evidence-based, but it's based on the cases uh, I, I've seen and done. Uh, in this patient, sometimes you have to increase your PEEP uh, up to almost 20, and you just to get the uh, transpulmonary expiratory pressure around uh, zero. And uh, I, I saw several cases when using these settings and using uh, uh, PEEP titration based on uh, transpulmonary pressure, I increased a lot the PEEP. I didn't have any impact on the hemodynamics and I had a huge improvement in uh, at least the uh, uh, PF ratio. So this group of patients is at least interesting. The, the other uh, group of patients that might benefit from uh, transpulmonary pressure measurement is also uh, all the patients I think who have uh, chest wall issues and uh, in patients with abdominal surgery or patients with uh, increased uh, abdominal pressure such as patients with pancreatitis. Uh, this is also a, a good way to measure this extra pulmonary severity and sometimes to increase the uh, uh, the PEEP just to uh, to fight the uh, chest wall pressure. Now we've talked about uh, its role in adjusting um, particularly PEEP and driving pressure. Are there any other uses for transpulmonary, uh, sorry, for esophageal monitoring? Uh, yes, of course, there are different ways uh, people have been using it. Uh, just uh, it's very easy to detect asynchrony and dyssynchrony with esophageal pressure because you have a direct measurement of the uh, patient's effort. Uh, and as an example, uh, also, again, the team from Boston with uh, Elias Bedov-Cassis uh, published a very uh, interesting paper uh, in ICM where they show that using esophageal pressure um, um, uh, measurements with uh, the uh, airway pressure, they can 
see when the patient is doing an effort and they can detect, for instance, reverse triggering. So this is one way of using it, but you can detect all types of desynchrony because you have the timing of the patient's uh, effort and you have the timing of the ventilator. So you can see if you have reverse triggering when you first have uh, passive uh, insufflation and then you have uh, negative deflection showing that the patient's muscles are active, or you can see if you have delayed uh, insufflation or if you, uh, the patient is triggering very uh, hard with a huge negative depression, um, deflection, which shows that maybe the patient is under-assisted. So all this information can be uh, directly um, uh, used uh, and uh, collected with the autofocal uh, pressure. And the, there are even teams that have used it in uh, non-invasive uh, setting, so, settings, such as uh, the Italian um, team from Roma, uh, Domenico Greco, he, he used it to compare helmet versus uh, mask uh, in NIV treatment and to detect the um, pressure time products of the uh, patient's effort and to compare the different uh, um, uh, strengths uh, developed by the patient during uh, different settings. So uh, there are lots of areas for research and for direct implication for our patients to, to monitor uh, the uh, uh, depths of their effort and uh, their synchrony using this. Ty, for anybody who's out there who's interested in this technique, where can they find more information? So there are lots of information in the website that was developed by the group of Toronto. I, I, I talk a lot about the Toronto group from uh, Laurent Brochard because I've worked there and, and I know they, they use it a lot. But they have a very nice uh, website uh, that is uh, for their what is called uh, Center of Excellence in Mechanical Ventilation. And their website is coemv.blog. And you have in this website courses, examples, and direct calculators. So it's a nice way to get familiar with it. And you have a few uh, nice reviews uh, that were published in uh, the Blue Journal by Akumianakis, uh, also by uh, Tomaso Maori, and uh, uh, I think, and I published one in Respiratory Care if you are interested in, and uh, I will give you all these um, publications. So if you want to to publish the links, and uh, people can start learning about it and using it and and they'll see it's quite straightforward and easy. Ty Fam, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for your invitation. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. All of Osler's content and features are completely free. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. You'll also be able to access our logbook and any Osler learning you do is automatically recorded in your CPD diary. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.